Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is one of my favorite readings, personally, because Luke is a strong name in my family. My grandfather was Luke, his son, my uncle, was Luke, and his son, my cousin, my only cousin. Um, so on that respect, it's a, it's a connection. But also, it reminds me, every time I walk past somebody in the street, should I make eye contact and say hello if I don't actually physically do something for them? And I think back to this every time. The parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, but when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for the welcome. Um, Can I ask, out of interest, is there anybody here who had never heard the story of the Good Samaritan before? No. How many of you were shocked by it? Ever? Yeah, one or two. That's encouraging. There are a few who were shocked by it. Um, for better or for worse, we're a bit over familiar with the parables. They were our Lord's favourite teaching method. Depending on how you count them, there's about 45. And some of what they say is quite difficult to take. I was reminded of this very sharply three, four years ago. Um, Not absolutely sure why, but for the last few years I've ended up teaching Christian ethics at Christchurch University in Canterbury. A really fascinating experience with one of these parables. The course I was teaching 
wasn't for theology students. Um, they were religious studies students. They, many of them end up as secondary school teachers. Um, so they're not necessarily Christians. They don't necessarily have any real experience of the Christian scriptures. And what I was trying to say to them is that those scriptures, the parables in particular, are the bedrock of Christian ethics. They describe how we should behave. So I told them, I didn't read it to them, I told them the story of the labourers in the vineyard. You may remember it. You know, a farmer needs help, so he goes to the marketplace, hires some guys and says, I'll give you the daily wage. Come and help in my vineyard. Lunchtime, work's not going very well, so he goes and gets some more labourers. Afternoon tea break, still not finished, goes and gets some more labourers. End of the day, still not going well, in desperation for the last hour, he goes and rounds up the last of the men who work in the marketplace, looking for work. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same. He treats them as of equal value. Now, I told that parable to those youngsters, and you could have heard a pin drop. They were truly shocked by it. Just like the people who heard the parable of Good Samaritan probably were the first time as well. Perhaps that's why he told the stories the way he did. You know what he said? The second commandment is that you shall love your neighbour as much as you love yourself. And that neighbour, that person, is any person who needs your aid. There's no conditions around it. No exceptions, no excusing ourselves. Neighbour is everyone in need. That's a bit difficult to take on the chin, isn't it, really? So what can we say about this question, who is our neighbour? Well, of course, Jesus told this story for one good reason, he wanted to change people's behaviour. He wanted to change their lives. So for us coming to it, unfortunately, in most cases, not fresh at all, it becomes for us a way of working through how we understand Christian ethics. And I'm afraid I'm terribly Anglican, I'm not going to apologise for that, but I am. And our classic way of working out what to do in a particular situation, is to look at scripture, to look at our tradition, to look at our reasoning, and to look at our experience. And that's going to be my structure, in case you think I'm making this all up as I go along. Not this morning. Now, you'll, I'm sure will forgive me if I spend just a little bit longer on the scriptural side of exploring the text. If I'm right, and Jesus told this story to change people, 
it might well be that it is sufficient for us to take this story on the chin as it stands. The virtuous person in the story is the despised outsider. That Samaritan person knew what should be done for the injured traveller. There's no fine debating, no concern about crossing social boundaries. He doesn't treat that injured traveller as someone else, an other. Instead, he treats him as his brother. Not other, but brother. He knows what should be done and he gets on with it. He stops, he takes action, and he makes provision for the future of that person. He doesn't even know who he is, but he does know that his behaviour must be that of active goodness. I have a suspicion, and I hope this is not going to be too difficult for you, but I have a suspicion that we can all too easily be sidetracked by the detail of the story and in the course of reflecting on what the exact significance of the oil might be, miss the whole point. Christ calls us here and now to make our relationships to be like those of this Samaritan person who is simply good because he knows it's the right thing to do. And he... Yes, he's an outsider. Um, the roots of that antipathy between Jewish people and Samaritans go right back to ancient history for Jewish people. If you want to read it up, it's in 1 Kings 12. When Solomon died, there was a dispute about who should follow him. Um, his son, who frankly was a bit of a thug, got the vote of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and became their king. The other ten tribes separated, formed the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. And although the two kingdoms did cooperate sometimes, basically they loathed each other. And they went on loathing each other. They learnt it at their mother's knees. Because, bluntly, those people up north weren't proper Jews. They worshipped in the wrong place even though they worshipped the same God, obeyed the same Torah, were identical in almost every way. <laughs> but they were the wrong people. And before anybody sits back in a mischievous Christian way and feels smug, actually Christians are pretty good at that as well, aren't we? Yes. Of, it's called othering. Yeah. You make people to be other 
than you. And that gives you the pretext for failing to treat them in the same way that the Samaritan treats the injured man. We don't have to help them because they're different, other, not us. I do wonder, actually, what the Samaritans make of our use of their name. Because they still survive as a community. They have two settlements. One of them is where it's always been, around Mount Gerizim, where they have their temple to the Almighty, where they still make the blood sacrifices laid down in Leviticus. Not very often, because they're a very poor community. Times a year. And then they have another group who live in a separate village. They're still there, still faithful, still loathed by the Jews, and still loathing. It fascinates me that actually um, that was the situation as it had arrived by the time of our Lord's earthly life. Um, In earlier days, Jewish tradition had been a little more tolerant. And you only have to look um, in Genesis and you'll find people worshipping in all sorts of places, not just in Jerusalem. Yes, Abraham does offer um, a sacrifice at Jerusalem. That's where Melchizedek arrives and disappears almost instantly. But he also offers sacrifice in all sorts of other places, and so many of the prophets do as well. We know, just as a matter of interest, well, I think it's interesting, and I'm preaching, so that's what counts, um, (laughs) that when the two kingdoms were overwhelmed by their neighbours who lived in what we now call Iraq. One group of Jewish people fled to the furthest southern bit of Egypt. There's a reference to it, if you're interested, in 2 Kings 25. They went to a place called Elephantini, which was the last town in Egypt. You know, that's pretty grim. And they built a temple and they offered the sacrifices of Leviticus to God. And there's even a letter from the Jerusalem temple to the Elephantini temple, explaining how to do things so that they got it right. So at one time, there, you know, there'd been a lot more flexibility and a lot more tolerance. But under the pressure of living in the Roman Empire, they'd become more and more narrow. They had, in fact, developed a nasty case of bigotry. And this story, as it stands, without needing to dig through the detail, utterly condemns any such behaviour. Who is my neighbour? Well, says Jesus, actually, even the Samaritans gasp of horror from audience. So scripture, tradition, well, I'm afraid that over the years Christian preachers have not been able to restrain themselves um, from taking this story 
at its face value. And I expect a lot of us here have heard really detailed descriptions of what exactly everything in the story means. Most of these go back to a guy called Augustine, not the one who came to Canterbury, but the one who lived in North Africa. He was Bishop of Hippo, and he never wrote his sermons down. He prepared them, and then he delivered them straight to his people. He had a community that he lived with, what we'd call monks now, and one of them used to write the sermons down as he preached them in shorthand so that they were saved. So that's how we know what he said. And there was this wonderful occasion when he was preaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And being an ancient bishop, he was sitting down to preach. Will the microphone work if I go down there? Yeah, that's okay, right. So imagine Augustine. sitting on his chair in front of his congregation and preaching. And he's got his copy of scripture on his lap. He's got his preparation notes. He's got various bits and pieces, you know. And he starts to go through the detail. What the oil might mean. What the wine might mean. And so on and so on. And he, he's got a, a sort of repertoire, if you like, a collection of things that he attaches in these parables. And he gets to the end and he realises that the only thing he's got left to describe the donkey is the church. At which point, his copyist notes in the sermon that the bishop got up, scattered papers on the floor, and said to the people, let us proclaim the faith of the church in the words of the creed. He couldn't face the thought of the church as a donkey. I wonder why. Actually, I think it's quite a good image. Carrots, sticks, stubbornness, reluctance to move. All sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? I tell the story is that I want you, please, to resist, in a positive way, that kind of symbolic reading of these stories. I can't see it in the gospel. I can't see it as our Lord's intention. I think he wanted us to see simple, straightforward messages and to act on them. But we have this need, I suppose, to spiritualise, explain, I think we have to challenge ourselves over that kind of reading, though, because it's so a means of avoidance. Did Christ expect us to puzzle over the details of this story, or does he want us to change the way we behave? Yeah? It seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? that um, need to think things through, it's, it's part of our nature, it's part of our God-given nature, and I believe that God gave us our brains in order to use them, um, and we can try and reason our way through this story, 
Um, you know, why did the priest walk by? Was he on the way to Jerusalem? In which case, perhaps, he was turning up for his four weeks of duty that he was chosen for by, at random by Lot, where he could reasonably expect something wonderful to happen. Do you remember John the Baptist's father, Zechariah? You know, during his four weeks of duty, went into the holy sanctuary of God and had a vision of God's presence. It struck him dumb. So, you know, that priest walking up Jerusalem, was, it, was he looking forward? No, was this going to happen to him as well? Had he heard about Zechariah? That sort of thing. Or was he on the way home, relieved to get back to his family after his four weeks' absence? And does that matter at all? Perhaps he and the Levite, the other religious leader, did not do what they should have done. And there's a challenge for us in that, isn't there? To think through what Christ calls on us to do. But it doesn't really tell us anything more about the central theme of that parable. That it's the outsider that's the helper. I read um, a very sad little piece in the Church Times, and of course I couldn't find it when I wanted it for this morning, you know, typically. Um, somebody had gone to um, a town in the middle of the United States, probably not fair to say where or which particular religious tradition the people he was because um, I don't want it to sound like I'm you know, knocking other Christians. But the question that he was teasing at with this congregation is this very one. You know, who is my neighbor? And the context was the, the great dispute about the southern border of the United States. And one of the members of that congregation actually said to him, Mexicans are not my neighbours. My neighbours live in this place, in this state. And that feels like, to me, like the point has been missed. Perhaps you'd like to take away that thought and kick it around a bit. I suggest that in this gospel passage there are no excuses for avoidance of our duty to our neighbours. And then if we think about our experience, I suppose for most of us, I'm running out of time, our experience of self-giving love will reside in our families, perhaps. Um, I hope, you know, the care we receive from our parents or the care that we give to our children, or in my case, grandchildren, um, that's one of the ways that we understand self-giving love. Supremely, of course, Christ's self-giving love shown in his offering of himself once offered upon the cross. Are there limits 
on self-giving love. Are there? I rather hope not. Yes, there's a challenge for us as how we translate that belief into coping with people that we don't get on well with or that we feel uneasy about or with. But we have to hang on to the principle that there is no limit on self-giving love. So what are we going to do with this parable? I hope, I pray this morning, that it will do for us all what it did for our Lord's first hearers. We know, because he's taught us, and our community of faith encourages us, that we should do the right thing. And that can be at the personal level of, you know, the people we meet in our ordinary lives. Neighbours, friends, people at the shop, at the bus stop. We know what we should do collectively. Easy list. Support the street pastors. Fill up the food bins. Fill up the community wardrobe bins as well, actually, while we're at it. Support Christians against poverty. All those things we, we practically do together. And I know you've got other things that you do as a community as well. Individually, as a community of faith, we have to put it into practice. And we have to be really brave about challenging ourselves. Because it's so tempting, isn't it, to have those boundaries. Christ's love for us is reconciling love. Together, by his blood, we are reconciled to one another and to God. Do we behave like it? Do we pick and choose who we're reconciled to? Or is our reconciliation with humanity as universal as the Father's love for humanity. Jesus himself was born into a society that was beset with prejudice. As a good Anglo-Catholic, I don't like to say the next bit, but you know, he would have learnt the, the prejudice at his mother's knee. Mummy, why can't I play with Jehoiakim? He's a Samaritan. Oh, get on and eat your tea. Yes, I wonder how Blessed Mary dealt with those sort of questions. And one of the most fascinating things about the Gospel is that he seems to change his mind. He finds himself one day 
thirsty at a well on his own with a woman with no chaperone and he asks her for a drink and surprise, surprise she's a Samaritan but she still gives him a drink of water and in the gospel passage she challenges him doesn't she? You know, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from under the table. And it's one of a series of very telling moments where he says to the outsider, actually, you're right. He starts off saying that he sent the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then he sees faith in that Samaritan woman. He sees faith in a Roman soldier. Actually, he says, doesn't he? You know, never in Israel have I seen faith like that. So, he changes what he says. He had the courage to be different. One of the most remarkable things about that upcountry rabbi, Jesus from Nazareth, is that he never asks us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. So if he can overcome the prejudices of his culture and accept everybody, which incidentally is how he is able to save us to the uttermost. To open ourselves to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and be just as accepting of humanity as he was. Would you like to pray to yourself for a few moments? on that theme. Lord Jesus, by your grace, may we hear your call and respond to it. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen.